church? I don't think there is. No. I think mo some of our workers were sick, so we so I don't think we have it. Yeah. So, or I think that's I think that we're staying inside, and the kids are staying with us today. So, all right. Well, we're continuing our study of Deuteronomy. At this pace, we'll all be 20 years older by the time we get through Deuteronomy. <laughs> but that's okay. You know, there's a lot of good lessons in there. Last week, we entered into uh, the second kind of part of the Ten Commandments that had to do with human relationships. And we looked at the fact that while all of the Ten Commandments have to do with our relationship with God, we honor God, we show our love for God in the keeping of his commandments. And how we treat others says something about how we normally treat God. Or perhaps we could put it this way, that our reverence for God is seen in our reverence for people. Or even another way, our love of God is reflected in how we love others. And of course, in the New Testament, we learn that we are to love the church. Uh, there are many passages we could choose, but let's look for a moment at something Paul said. This is not our main text this morning, but leading to it. Paul said something that indicates that we're to be good to everyone, all of our neighbors, but especially good to those in the church. Galatians 6, 9, and 10 says, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Do good to everyone, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. We're supposed to be extra good to one another. And we see that this love for one another is a reflection of our love for God. If we would love God better, we would keep his commands better. And if we would show our love to the community at large, and especially those who are of the household of faith, then we would keep the commands better. All of us at times look around at others and we notice where we think they could be doing a better job at something. Don't we do that every day? It's human nature to do this. But we are warned by the Lord that in our efforts to help someone else do a better job as a Christian, we'd better take note of our own big failures. Before we remove the speck from someone's eye, we had better remove the log in our own eye, right? Again and again, I have mentioned church unity, and I will continue to do so without apology. You see, what makes a particular church a great church is not the eloquence of the preacher, it's not the talent of the worship team, or a well-maintained property, and we got two out of those three with our worship team and our well-maintained property. What makes the church great, though, is not those things, it's biblical living as reflected in the unity of the saints. And this happens best when those saints begin to realize that they demonstrate love for one another in the family of God through the keeping of the commandments of God, the commandments of Christ. If he said, if you love me, you will keep my commands, and many of his commands are very direct about how we are supposed to treat fellow humans. 
and especially those who are of the household of faith. Last week, we looked at the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. I hope we have all seen the value of that, how the keeping of this command demonstrates the love of God in us and demonstrates the love of God to others who see how we honor our father and mother. Now, this morning, we're going to look at the next two commands. I had to decide, am I going to try to do one at a time, two at a time, four at a time? I'm going to do two today. It may seem unrelated, but as we wrap up the Ten Commandments next week, Lord willing, I hope you will have the eyes of your hearts enlightened to see how the keeping of all of these commands contributes to a healthy community, especially in the household of faith. So here's our our main passage for this morning. Let's see. What? Nine words. You shall not murder, and you shall not commit adultery. Pretty short. That's probably the shortest main passage I'll ever have for a sermon. It's hard to get much more direct, though, than the sixth through the ninth commandments. You shall not murder. No caveats, no exceptions, no maybes, no what ifs. And you shall not commit adultery. No caveats, no exceptions, no maybes, no what ifs. You shall not. Let us look first at the command to not murder. Now, some translations of the Bible, including the King James Version, which I know some of you love, have translated this to say you shall not kill. And unfortunately, over time, many have wrongly used that passage in that translation to say that therefore there should be no death penalty or that a Christian should not go to war or if he must, he must not carry a weapon because of the commandment not to kill. But the word translated here from Hebrew is not so broad as the word kill suggests in English. For if we were to take that completely literally, that the translation that you shall not kill, then we would have a conflict in scripture, wouldn't we? Actually, more than one conflict. For for one, God often commanded his people to kill when he sent them to war against his enemies. Joshua was commanded to kill five kings. When Israel came into the promised land, they came as conquerors, commanded by God to kill off entire populations of God's enemies. If God never changes, then we have a major problem if in Deuteronomy chapter 5 he says do not kill and he had said it previously in Exodus chapter 20 you shall not kill and then he orders the people to kill later in in the same book. So that would be a contradiction but we don't have a contradiction. We don't have to fear about that. There is not a contradiction. I don't need to remind most of you that the Old Testament is not originally written in English. It was written in ancient Hebrew language and in their language just as in ours They had words that may be similar, but those words had specific meaning. And the word translated to murder in most translations and translated into kill in some translations, in the original Hebrew, it had a specific meaning that means you shall not kill on a personal level. What does that mean, to kill on a personal level? What means you kill based on your own judgment or either for revenge or from anger, or even if you perceived that someone was committing a sin that deserved the death penalty, you could not, on your own, act as judge, jury, and executioner. For these, those sins that required a death penalty, it wasn't up to any individual, but it was up to the community to punish that. And this was through the courts or a decision of the elders of the community. And remember from my sermon back in May on the cities of refuge, 
there were strict rules regarding the proof needed to convict someone, right? Namely, there had to be two or more eyewitnesses to the crime, and there had to be an examination and a cross-examination of those witnesses. But clearly, God mandated the death penalty in cases of proven murder. We see this all the way back just after the flood in Genesis 9-6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Yet, even in a terrible case, let's say you and others witnessed your neighbor commit murder, it is not up to you as an individual or even up to you and your friends who are co-witnesses to put that person to death. There has to be a trial. It's like that scene where Wyatt Earp uh, is holding back the lynch mob and they say, he just killed a man. And Wyatt Earp answers, and he'll stand trial for it. You see, Israel was not to be like the Wild West. It wasn't to be like the Hatfields and the McCoys either, where families more or less sent assassins back and forth, the revenge ramping up all the time. The people of Israel were to have an ordered community. And this is part of why the book of Deuteronomy exists. It sets down the rules for people to live by, which are also found in the other books of the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Bible. You were not to commit any personal killing. No taking the law into your own hands. However, if a crime was committed, there were crimes for which there was a death penalty. In fact, the two commands we're looking at this morning, both were death penalty commandments. If you violated either one, you were subject to the death penalty. But let me stress again that the standards of proof were high. And the charge to the community to get justice right was also high. And next week, as we look at the last three commandments, including the one about bearing false witness, we will see how that ties into these commands as well. You shall not murder does not apply to someone who in the, in the act of defending himself or others from violence ends up killing someone. The Bible is very clear about the right of people to not only defend themselves from violence, but actually lays out an obligation to defend others. If someone came into this church to commit violence, I hope every man in here would stand to defend the family of God. I certainly would not stand by and let someone commit violence to my family, which you are all part of. So self-defense or defending others from violence is not violating this command. But some Christians have pointed out, well, wait a minute. Jesus, when he commanded us to love our enemies, he also said to turn our other cheek. And doesn't that mean we're not supposed to defend ourselves? Well, just a few weeks ago, Focus on the Family had a brief blog about this. And in part, they said this, quote, Christ is telling his followers that they need to let go of the desire to get back at others who have wronged them in some way. Augustine Uh, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and other great thinkers in the history of Christian theology have explained this verse as follows. Disciples of Jesus should be willing to suffer personal injustices, but they should also realize that loving one's neighbor sometimes implies a willingness to use force. In other words, we should always be prepared to defend others who are being abused and mistreated in some way. So complete non-resistance is not necessarily an absolute standard for the Christian life, end quote. 
Others have pointed out that when you stand by and allow the abuse of others, that you're actually, in a sense, guilty for that abuse since you did nothing to stop it, and you could have. We all have a responsibility to stand up to abuse, violence, bullying, and other cruel crimes. We don't tell a woman in an abusive relationship to turn the other cheek. We don't tell a kid being bullied at school that, well, you're a missionary to the school, so you should think about the mission over your personal safety or well-being. That sort of false piety has no place among believers. We must not be complicit in the mistreatment of others because we're going to take Scripture to mean that Christians are supposed to be the type who just stand around letting themselves and others be mistreated. It is also not a violation of this command for a soldier who serves under proper authority in a time of war who must kill an enemy. However, it is incumbent on those who are sending the soldiers to war to be sure that the cause is just, that they would send others away for fight, to fight. Certainly, world leaders at many times in human histories have stood guilty of murder for conducting a war or battle that was unjust. But soldiers they commanded do not bear that same guilt so long as they were following lawfully given orders. This can get messy, of course, right? So what does a private do when his captain tells him, don't leave anyone alive and there's unarmed civilians in a village or in a line of fire? And this is in part why the military has its own court system to try and ensure that those fighting obey not only the law and the conventions of war, but their code of conduct as well. Remember that the keeping of these commandments reflect our love for God and our love for people. The vast majority of people, though, are not guilty of murdering anyone. Not only that, this is not only a biblical command. It's enshrined in the laws of just about every human civilization that we know about. Murder is not only against God's law, it's against the law of the land as well. So at this point, it's possible you might be thinking, then get on with it, pastor. We know we're not supposed to kill people. So it's hardly worth a sermon about it. And probably there were Jewish people in the days of Jesus when he was preaching who did not spend much time reflecting on this commandment since it was so clear and so universal and the vast majority of the population would certainly be able to say, of course, I never have and never will murder someone. So when Jesus came onto the scene, He skipped over this commandment because it was already so well known and understood that it would have been a waste of time for him to talk about, right? Well, no, that isn't the case. In fact, what Jesus did was he took a command that most people thought probably they have nothing to worry about, and he made it something we all had to worry about. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this, starting in Matthew 5.21, you have heard that it was said of those of old, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. This is Jesus' words, not mine. Don't look at me like that. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. 
Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. I am sure that people who are listening to the Sermon on the Mount were taken aback by this statement. Anger equals murder? Come on. Yet, where does murder start? It usually starts right here with anger. And wrapped up with that anger can be jealousy, greed, coveting. Look at what James says about what causes fights in James 4, 1 and 2. What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. I've often opened up this passage when I've been dealing with children who have allowed themselves to get into a shouting match because no one wants to share. This is a great lesson to talk about with people who are in a bitter disagreement. This is a great lesson for all of us, and I would argue that almost all division in the church could be explained by James 4. Sometimes it isn't an actual object that's being coveted, you understand. It may simply coveting your own way, and, and you didn't get things your way, but somebody else did. And it's sad to say that many church divisions are not over doctrine or interpretation of Scripture, but about where a plant should go or what types of seating we should have or the color of the curtains or the temperature the thermostat is set to. And I wish I were only joking. I actually had a guy tell me about how he and someone else in a particular church I once attended had a cold war over the thermostat. So he would try to get to church early to get the seat closest to the thermostat so he would have control. And I sat and I listened to him telling me about this, almost like he was proud of himself. Yeah, I get here so I can sit there, then they can't change it. He was serious about it. He had a passion for the church being at a certain temperature. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you. Now let's go back to what Jesus said there in the Sermon on the Mount again for a moment. If I were to paraphrase what Jesus said, it's something like this. If you hold anger in your heart towards someone, even though you might not have actually physically murdered them, you are just as guilty in your heart as if you had. And when you speak of someone with derision calling them a fool or something like that. You're deserving of hell. This is so important that if you bring a gift to God, it will be stained by your anger towards another. You need to forgive. And before you bring a gift to God, you need to ask that person to forgive and make it right. And then you come to God with your gift. Now, it is no coincidence that just after rocking everyone's world about the sixth commandment, not to murder, and what that's really about, Jesus went on to the next command. Now he makes all the people who thought they were safe because they had never physically committed murder or adultery even more uncomfortable as he deals with the issue of lust. Starting in Matthew 5.27, you've heard it said that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. 
And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go to hell. The commandment is you shall not commit adultery. This would have needed no more explanation in most Jewish people's eyes that Jesus was speaking to. The word only had one meaning. Adultery is when a married person has sexual intercourse with someone other than their spouse. Since this commandment potentially could lead to the guilty parties being put to death, it is safe to say that Jesus was speaking to people who mostly did not worry about this commandment because most people would not have committed this sin. I mean, there's a pretty heavy penalty. That would be a good deterrent, I would think. In fact, with the ancient uh, Near East, this sin of adultery, not just in the Israelite community, but in the community even beyond that, it was referred to as the great sin. And it was associated with anarchy. In other words, it was a sin against society itself. This sin carried with it a lot of guilt and shame. Adultery was also something God used as an illustration for those who worshipped other gods or idols. So it shouldn't surprise us that idolatry was also referred to as the great sin. Israel's disloyalty to Yahweh was compared to adultery by Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Hosea. It is one of the ugliest sins. When I have counseled couples preparing to get married, I always start the first session by reading from Ephesians chapter 5, and it says this, Wives, Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see she respects her husband. So I start this, the first marriage session with a couple that's going to get married, and I, I read this, and then I tell them that throughout Scripture, God uses marriage as an illustration. It is at times an illustration of the Trinity, Marriage gives us a picture of the Trinity. In the Trinity, there is perfect unity. And that is what our ideal for marriage should be. But also, Scripture uses marriage as an illustration for our relationship with God. And, of course, Christ and his church. So Paul is saying to women in Ephesus that her husband is to be to her as Christ is to the church. And likewise to the husband, that he is to be a representative of Christ to his wife. Now, I know that verse 22 offends many people today who would say that a woman should not be expected to submit to her husband. Well, sometimes it's helpful to reframe an idea like this. So I would ask a woman that may object to this teaching with 
about submission with this question. If your husband were perfectly like Christ, would you have any problem submitting to him as head of the household? And every Christian woman would answer, no, I would not have a problem submitting if he were perfectly like Christ. But he ain't, right? And to the husband who may like to take this verse to get his wife to do his bidding in an unholy way, I would ask an even tougher question. Do you love your wife as Christ loves his church? None of us can say we've done this perfectly. Or at times even very well. So then I would ask the husband, how do you expect her to submit to you if you are not modeling Christ? Now, if we were focused more on the fact that marriage is to be likened to Christ and his church, we will find ourselves less tempted towards the sin of adultery, even in the expanded way that Jesus explained it. We would do well to bring together once and for all in our minds this concept that marriage on earth is to be an illustration of God's love and desire for relationship with us. And God considers the sin of adultery to be particularly heinous. And this is why, through those prophets, God often used the language of sexual sin in describing apostate Israel. In fact, the language gets pretty colorful. Those who sin against God, especially in the area of idol worship, are called whores, prostitutes, and adulterers. So I think we can conclude that our proper reaction to these sexual sins and perversions all around us should be discussed. However, rather than just shake our heads at the sexual perversion in our society, we ought to reflect on ourselves in our relationship with a holy God. You see, he considers the violation of marriage vows to be violence. Malachi 2, 15 and 16 says, Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Now notice that Malachi is making absolutely sure that no one thinks he is speaking here. He says twice, the Lord God of Israel, and then again, the Lord of hosts says this. We may not consider sexual sin to be violence, but God does. And let us not be like the many in Jesus' day who probably thought themselves safe from accusation because they never violated the command against adultery, at least not the physical act of it. For as Jesus pointed out, that sin begins in our mind. If God considers it violence, then we ought to as well. For what does it all lead to? Broken families, lifelong hurt, confused children who deal with the fallout of divorce. And the violence sexual sin does to our society is visible everywhere we look. So I challenge you, based upon the case I've made this morning from Scripture, to make a connection in your mind of these sins with the idolatry that God associates it with. The thrice holy God sees violations to these commands as violence. 
Certainly they are violence to people in the sense that people are ripped apart emotionally and spiritually by these sins. However, the greater violence is against God himself. Holy God, who has given good gifts to his creatures and has proven himself to be trustworthy and just and righteous, expects that those creatures will honor him in the keeping of his commands. And really, the breaking of any of his commands do violence against God himself. Any sin, no matter how lightly we may take it, is cosmic treason against God the creator, God the perfect judge, the thrice holy God of all. Jesus makes this clear to us in making an unequivocal statement about the judgment. When, people will evalu- when God will evaluate people's attitudes towards him based on how they demonstrated their attitude towards others. Truly I say to you, as you did or did not do to one of the least of these, you did or did not do to me. We would be unable to find a more direct uh, connection between how our treatment of those created in God's image reflects our love or our lack of love for God himself. Which commandment is greatest of all, Jesus was asked, and his answer in Matthew 22, starting at verse 37, was you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great, the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So we've looked at two commands this morning that indeed are to be taken seriously. As we've seen, these commandments are an indication of our heart more than our actual actions, as Jesus stated in the sermon, which tells us that we really ought to concern ourselves not only with actions, but with our thoughts as well. Paul wrote in Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. How do we discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect? By reading the word of God. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We have all fallen short of the standard. But what do we do when we realize we've messed up? What do we do when we're face-to-face with God's word and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of our heart and our thoughts and intentions we realize have been opposed to the will of God? What do we do then? We repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. May we all reflect on our own hearts and attitudes and may we have the humility to repent whenever God's word shows us our own faults. And may we always believe the truth of the gospel, that he saves us despite ourselves, and he will always forgive the one who sincerely confesses their sin to him, and therein lies our hope. So if you've been discouraged because one of these sins felt personal to you, 
believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. And God can wash your sins away and make you clean. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word this morning. I thank you, Lord, that you've given us these commandments, your statutes and laws that are passed down originally to Israel and now to us to guide us into the way of holiness. Help us, Lord, to live as righteous people, eager to please you by keeping your commandments, and likewise to love each other, and especially those who are of the household of faith, and showing that love through the keeping of your commands. Help us to do it, Lord. We need your Holy Spirit in our lives to help us do this. That we can live effectively for your glory and for your kingdom. God, we ask for your help to live out your commands. In Jesus' name, amen.